James Letter, podcast number six, Bible study number six. We're looking at chapter three. I've called it Taming the Tongue. We'll read the chapter together. Chapter three, verse one to verse number 18. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member. And boast great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a grape tree my brethren bear olives or a grapevine bear figs thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh who is wise and understanding among you let him show by good conduct his works done in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth this wisdom does not descend from above but is earthly sensual demonic for where envy and self-seeking exist confusion and every evil thing are there but the wisdom that is from above is first pure then peaceable gentle willing to yield full of mercy and good fruits without partiality without hypocrisy now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace we'll just pray together our father we think of this solemn passage We thank thee for thy grace in our lives, saving us and keeping us to this point. And yet we acknowledge the truth of the verses that tell us that we stumble many times by the use of our tongue. Father, we would like to be like the perfect man. We know ultimately the perfect man is no doubt a picture of the Lord Jesus, but We remember that we can be mature and self-controlled. That the possibility is there by the strength of thy spirit. And so we would pray that as we look at this passage together for a short time. That we might take something from it that changes our lives. We leave ourselves in thy presence in the Lord's precious name. Amen. So last evening we looked at faith that works. um, Particularly in the taming of the tongue the taming of the tongue 
<clears throat> if you have the handout in front of you, it'll help us as we go through it together. Um, you'll notice that really this section, it starts with words. Well, that's really what the tongue speaks about, words, what we say. Um, that's just the way he sums it up. He speaks about the tongue. And when we get to the end of the passage, he's not speaking so much about words, but about wisdom. He's he's going underneath the words. He's he's bringing us back a level. And, and the reason for that is, as the Lord says um, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, another way to put it um, is as it is in the, the Christian Standard Bible, I think it puts it like this. The word or the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And so really the heart and the wisdom that governs the heart is the root problem and also the root answer to the problem and so as he goes down and speaks about the the dangers of the tongue in so many ways he's going to show that the the way we can change is not through merely clamping our teeth down upon our tongue and hoping for the best while that sometimes is a good policy if we're going to truly be able to control our tongue it will only come if we are marked by the wisdom that is from above verse 17 which is first pure then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now it's a very similar list to the fruit of the Spirit. And it's only through the work of the Spirit in our lives that we are able to control what we say and our speech. But we'll go down the section um, in a little bit more detail now. I don't know. I'm sure you're like me and you've kicked yourself on many occasions because of what you've said. If I'd only not said that is kind of what we say. And when I was a child, my mum and I'm sure other mothers and other places did the same thing. My mum would have said to me, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me. And, and we kind of use that. I'm sure she said that to me. Now, Parents who say this to their children, they mean well, and there's a sense in which it's true, but there's another sense in which it's really not true, is it? Um, because words can be very harmful. Um, words can start wars. And as Jim continues his little book on practical faith, and he points out the dangers of the tongue in graphic language, and he layers metaphor upon metaphor to bring home the point, we really have to take on board what he's saying. We should be praying to the effect of Paul when Paul writes, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer each person, so on. Now behind every tongue is a mind, as we've said, and is the thoughts of the individual. And there's a real sense in which the test of the health of our thought life is when we open our mouth. Doctors can discover lots of things through looking at the tongue or, or smelling the breath. Um, and really, that's true on a spiritual level as well. If we're constantly criticizing, cursing or gossiping, it really tells of a deeper problem, a deeper problem within. And really, that's what James deals with, as I said, at the 
at the end of the passage. Now, underlying the whole passage and really the major point that James is making is that there are several, it seems, um, perhaps more aspiring teachers in the company that he's writing to. And you'll see that comes out from time to time and comes to the surface. But the principles underlying this passage are good for us all. Okay, let's look at the passage in more detail. Um, if you turn to um, James Taming the Tongue, the, the table in, in, in our section. Verse 1 to 12, I've, I've summarized that is really taming your tongue. And then verse number 13 to 18 as minding your mind. So taming your tongue, verse 1 to 12, minding your mind, verse 13 to 18. Now we'll just go down the section. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, it it's not that he's saying don't become teachers. There's other passages in the word of God that clearly um, say that you could should cultivate your gift. For instance, uh, Timothy is told to stir up the gift that is in him. So if you're gifted as a teacher, he's not wanting to stop you from becoming a teacher. What he's really bringing home is the weight and the responsibility that falls upon those who profess to have wisdom and want to impart that wisdom to other believers. So be not many teachers. Not many of you, uh, The I think it's the ESV says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, we use the illustration from 1 Kings 13 of the younger prophet. You remember there were two prophets. The younger prophet comes and prophesies against the northern kingdom and their false altar. And he says that God is going to move and uh, he says, Thus saith the Lord. And what he's doing is he's speaking for God. And yet by the end of the chapter, he is ignoring what God has said to him. God has particularly said, don't stop, don't eat, don't stay in the northern kingdom. Go back home thereafter. And yet the old prophet comes along and the old prophet waylays him. And we can think of the rights and wrongs of that Um which is an interesting section of the Word of God, a graphic illustration. But underpinning it all seems to be this thought that you are more accountable the more you know, the more you understand, the more you profess to be the one who is speaking for others, you are more accountable. And that's perhaps why the Lord's fiercest critic criticisms were for the pharisees those who said that, that you know we we are speaking for to the people we are we are unfolding the word of god to the people we sit in moses seat as the lord says in one place and so the fiercest criticisms of the lord came upon those who were teaching that's why it's really solemn for for instance people in, in authority uh, among other Christians. We can think of those in high positions of of, of leadership and so on in, in the wider Christian community. When they start to say things that are against the scriptures or when they don't live in accordance with what they are teaching, 
it's a very serious sin. And as we find out from that young prophet in 1 Kings chapter 13, he ends up being uh, slain by the, the lion. Now that's symbolic in itself, but we'll not stop there anymore. So what he seems to be saying is, now think long and hard, my brothers, before you want to become teachers. So there seemed to be this mad rush to want to spread the word of God in that sense, but it didn't necessarily come from the right wisdom and the right motives, as we'll see later on. They just wanted to talk, we would say. And what he's doing, James, is restraining the rush to teach on the part of those not qualified to do so, as Hybert has put it. So verse one, number one is really pointing out the heavy responsibility as the teacher in the use of his tongue. The more you use your tongue, the more you're responsible to live by the truth that you're professing to hold to and to spread to others. Verse number two, a sign of true maturity, a controlled tongue, I've called this. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. You'll see in the back page of our handout, I, I have put on it um, a, an appendix, which is some of the word pictures that are used um, in this chapter. Now, there are other ones, but I'm trying to point out how graphic um, John, uh, G- James is being as, as he goes down these verses. You'll notice um, he speaks about stumbling. Uh, and he also speaks about bridling, bringing under control the whole body. And, and that thought of bridling will come out uh, as we move down the passage as well. And so what he's saying is really the hardest member to control, the weakest link, as as, as Brother John uh, brought to us um, last evening, the weakest link of the body is the tongue. And the person who can control the tongue can therefore control the whole body. If you have a a, a self-control on your tongue, it proves in a very real sense that you control the rest of your body. And you control the way you are. You're marked by a maturity. He's a perfect man. That's really the thought behind perfection. Uh, Maturity, But of course, James comes from the house of the Lord Jesus. You'll remember that, won't you? James uh, grew up with the Lord and, and at every stage the Lord was perfect. And that's a beautiful thought. Just to think of how he used his words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You'll remember he stood up in the synagogue in Nazareth and they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. In Luke chapter 4, I put um, on the front of the handout... Um, Isaiah 50 and 4 I think it is Um, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary a word in season or sustaining with a word is, is a beautiful thought that marked the perfect man who was perfectly in control Verse 3 to 5a, it's not so much now the sign of true maturity as a controlled tongue, but the importance of controlling the tongue. 
This is a worthy aim. You you look at verse number 3 and 4 and into 5. And he speaks of little and large. He speaks of the little bits that we put in horse's mouth. With the bridle attached. And their whole body is turned around by it. He speaks about the little rudder that's used. And yet the pilot can use that to, to direct the whole large ship that's driven by fierce winds. So what is he saying here? He's, he's, he's saying that this is the exercise. If we can control the tongue, this is the way in which we can control the whole body. Really, it's interesting as we look at the illustrations. You think of a horse and, and, and you just put a little thing in their mouth and, and the great powerful um, racehorse or whatever it is, is will obey us. And the same with ships and and their rudders. We, you you think of these ships and you say, well, Paul, ships must have been or John, James. We'll get him right. James, the ships must have been very large when you were around. Well, they could accommodate more or less three hundred people at least, and and cargo as well. We know that from uh, the end of the Acts. Um, I think there were two hundred and seventy five or two hundred seventy six on board, uh, the ship at the end of the Acts. You'll notice, um, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. So I think really what he's saying here is how important it is to control the tongue. Because what he is really saying underlying these two illustrations is that they may obey us. We put bits in horses' mouths. The pilot desires it wherever the pilot wills. In other words, they're controlling the small thing and therefore controlling the large thing. And if we can control the small thing, then we can control the large thing. So the two illustrations, the animal and nautical illustrations, help us to understand the importance of controlling the tongue. Then we have the danger of an uncontrolled tongue. Look at verse number 5, the rest of verse 5 and into verse 6. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. A little spark. Before long there's a raging blaze. And that blaze can spread in the great fire of London. Um, I think it started in a baker's shop or something like that. And, and it ripped through the whole of London. Because there was plenty of wood about, yes. Um, but also just... Um, the smallness of the beginnings led to a horrendous, devastating holocaust of of problems as a result. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And as he uses this metaphor, um, the tongue is a fire, a world, another metaphor of iniquity. Um, he seems to be bringing that thought of we would go into work or, or something like that or we would um, say, oh, that that brought me into a world of problems. And really we're saying there are so many problems. There was, there was a great a range of problems that came my way as a result of, of going into work today, for instance. And and this is, seems to be what he's saying. He's, he's saying there's a whole range, the whole range, the whole, it could even be the whole system of inequity can come 
Um, it can be associated with the tongue. It is interesting. We were thinking about whether the whole gamut of sinful thoughts and, and, and actions and, and whatever can have a, a verbal side to it. That's an interesting thought. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. You see, not only um, does the heart lead to defiling talk, but the more you defile, you can defile other people. You can defile your own self in that sense. It's just like a spreading um, uncleanness if we're not in control of it. And it sets on fire the course of nature. Interesting thought. This is almost the, the cycle of nature or the, the, the whole wheel of nature. Every single step of, of the life cycle, as it were, is if can be affected by the tongue from the littlest children when they start shouting no and, and you get mad at them or they, if they're like Isaac and Hannah, they start speaking to each other nastily and, and before long somebody's hurt right up to the old folks in in homes who when they speak they sometimes can speak very insultingly of even those around them and those that are taking care of them basically whatever sphere the tongue is used it can have this devastating effect and set it on fire. The course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Now the word used for hell here is the word Gehenna. Now that's the word for the valley of Hinnom outside uh, Jerusalem. Um, it was originally used um, in idolatrous practice. In Second Kings, you look into it. I think I put the reference in the handout. Um, and it was used for the horrendous offering of children to Moloch. And because of it, uh, when a good king rose up, he defiled the whole place. He turned it into a, a, a place for rubbish and garbage and, 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 and burning and all these things. So, so we have coming out of this idea of, of Gehenna. That's a horrendous thought. And the Lord uses that as a picture of... Of, of hell, a place of defilement, a place of destruction, a place of fire. And it's a great illustration that, therefore, for what the tongue can become, as it were, almost like an expression of, of hell itself. How horrendous. Because it can be marked by those sins of idolatry and, and, and defilement. And, and it can be so destructive. And so it, that's, it has its same source. It takes character from hell itself. For, he'll go into the next section, he'll say our natural ability cannot control the tongue. We're, we're unable naturally to control this tongue. Now, I, you notice I say naturally. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea divides them into four kind of areas. Um, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. What he's saying is that in each of these areas, man tames. Man exercises his control over the creatures. This is kind of Psalm 8. But then he says the tongue can no one tame. No man or no person can tame the tongue in that sense. Which is very, very uh, solemn. Human nature can control animal nature. 
However, because of the fall of man, man lost dominion over himself and his tongue. How very, very solemn. We go down a little further now. Uh, We have then the inconsistency of the uncontrolled tongue from verse 9 to verse number 12. It's inconsistent towards God originally and it's contrary to nature as well. Inconsistent towards God and contrary to nature. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing my brethren. These things ought not to be so. He's saying this is inconsistent towards God. God, the God that we come into his presence and praise and bless and sing hymns and worship. And we should be doing so more and more. You look through the Psalms, you look through all different parts of the Bible. This is really, really important to stop here and say we should be praising and blessing our God. But what he also says is for us to do that and then walk out and start criticizing a colleague and work um, uh, and start being nasty in some way, shape or form. It's completely inconsistent. Those people are made, uh, as he puts it here in the the, um, New King James Version, they're made in the similitude of God. The similitude of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, another version puts it like this, in the likeness of God. I think he's taking us back to the fact that we are, people are personal, they're rational, they're volitional, they're moral, they're creative. All these kind of things that that mark them out as distinct from the animal uh, kingdom around us. And therefore we should give them respect, even if they do not respect themselves in that way. We should Show respect. It says in First Peter, honour all men. Now you say, how do you do that? Well, it's because they are valuable whether they appreciate their value or not. And so we should speak in a way that is praiseworthy. It doesn't mean there can't be legitimate criticism at times. We go through the Bible, we find there are times when there's legitimate criticism. But this kind of disrespectful, demeaning, speak and speech about different people ought not to be so as he says here my brethren it's not that he's saying i don't think you're saved he's my brothers my christian brothers but he is saying this is inconsistent with your appreciation and your praise of god and he says it's inconsistent and it's uh, with regard to nature itself it's contrary to the way nature behaves does a spring send forth fresh water verse 11 and bitter from the same opening. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No. You see, from the nature of the tree, it bears fruit. So for us, we must make sure that our tongue is an expression of the new nature that we have received in Christ Jesus. Obviously, these are rhetorical questions that have uh, no answer. Thus, a snow spring yields both salt water and fresh. Very interesting, this the illustrations when we put it in the context of the Dead Sea um, and so on. But that's for your own consideration. So that's the first section. We'll look just 
for a few minutes at the, 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 the second section that we have here, minding your mind. First of all, there's a call to wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? You see, there were some people, they were rising up and they were saying, we're wise, we should teach. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom, true wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. That's, again, interestingly, this word has behind it the thought of the bridle, the horse under control. So this is, as often has been pointed out, that there's a sense in which meekness is strength under control. There's this thought behind it of of humility, of meekness, of self-control, of ranking yourself under the word of God. And so if you're coming to teach the Lord's people that humility should mark you a controlledness should mark you but if you have bitter envy or jealousy and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth do not boast that over others is really the thought so um it's the idea of uh, don't you raise yourself up over other people. Don't don't you say I am brilliant. Uh, you know you mightn't put it in those words, but but there's a danger that pride could be the reason why you're wanting to teach. It could be I'm better, I'm more important, or whatever. May the Lord forgive us. It's in the human heart, and it's probably in each one of our hearts, even if we know it or not. And so that's why we need to be preserved. Now he's not only. Well, he is speaking about teachers primarily, I think, here. But we can extend this to any time we're passing on something to others. We ask ourselves, what are our motives for doing so? Is it just so that we look good? Is it so that we are looked upon as more important in some way? Or, or is it that, that we are really trying to benefit them and, and move them on in their Christian pathway? That's important to, to ask ourselves a little bit of... Um, Motive checking is important. And lie against the truth. Now, what is the truth? There are various ideas of what's being said here, but I, I think it's worth considering that he's just speaking generally about the truth, say, the, of the gospel. What happened at the gospel? Uh, when the gospel came to us, we say we're just, we're just sinners. We're nothing but sinners. Yes, God has created us, and yes, we're valuable, but we're nothing but sinners, and we're going to hell. And, and then we trusted the Savior, and he made us um, new in Christ. And, and really what he seems to be saying is this. Let's put it like this anyway. He seems to be saying, don't live out as if that was the, a lie. If you're trying to put yourself in a position of authority just for self-promotion because you think you're more valuable uh, or you're more important than other people, that's a very, that's a very anti-gospel sentiment. It's really lying against the truth, living a lie against the truth. So this wisdom doesn't descend from above but is earthly. It's limited by the earth um, and an earthly idea about things. It is essential. It comes from our... Um, some we might say our senses, what we we want to feel good about ourselves or something like that, um, rather than spiritual. And it's um, it comes in that sense from demons. It's demon- demonic. So 
He's saying, really, ultimately, that wisdom that you think you have, it could be coming from completely the wrong source. There could be a spirit behind it, which is wrong. Then he says, now, there is a true wisdom. And we'll finish with this. Verse number 17, just pausing at verse 16, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So what you can expect if there are these, you know, someone speaking and, and, and communicating and it's, you can expect the flesh to be very active in the sphere of their influence and confusion and, and evil things coming up. Whereas that's not the atmosphere of true biblical teaching and the way we should be uh, helping each other. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Sevenfold characteristics of the true wisdom that's from above, which is, you notice, first pure. There's nothing in sinful or impure about it it's first a pure thing and really before anything else it has to come from the pure word of god this wisdom it needs to be right it needs to be without sin um if we're communicating it to others and then he says however that it's peaceable instead of instead of causing problems and promoting yourself and and, and leading to disputes among the lord's people this should Bring us together, unite us. It's peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, and so on. So finally, maybe we should pause there and say, we can see all these beautifully illustrated in the life of the Lord Jesus. Now that's where we need to get to. Finally, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this really seems to sum it up. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The sphere is a sphere of peace. That's the way we should have it. When we're among each other and teaching the word together or sharing the word of God with one another, it should be a realm of peace. It's sown in peace. We should be sowing the fruit of righteousness. You say, well, you sow seeds. Yeah, but they lead the fruit. And what he seems to be saying is when you are trying to sow something into people's lives, try to make it that you're looking at the end game. You're trying to sow something that's profitable and will lead to the fruit of righteousness in their lives. And and what is the character of the people that do this? It's those who are peacemakers. So underlying this is this characteristic of peacemaking that should mark us not trying to promote ourselves, but rather um, being marked by this this peacemaking. Well, that's sort of a simple introduction to the chapter. I trust it will be a blessing for you when you go through it in your own time. Um, and we will be back again, God willing, uh, in another week or so. Thank you.